Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1 Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 1903, an immigrant came to America with $2.51. Almost no one knew who he was, but they would. He was going to get very, very rich, but his money and his fame came in kind of unusual ways. He didn't become a movie star or an athlete or a captain of industry. He became a con man, maybe the most famous one who had ever lived. He ran an investment business, sort of. You'd invest, and then very quickly you'd get high returns. It was a great con, and people practically threw their money at this guy, Charles Ponzi. Ponzi, not surprisingly, spent money like it was going out of style. He bought a mansion, he bought part of a pasta company, he brought his mother over from Italy on a fancy cruise ship. But it was only a matter of time before everything came crashing down. And Ponzi's scheme, which is so famous that it's now part of our vernacular, collapsed. This week, we're taking a look at trust. Trust in institutions, trust in success, and trust in people, even if that trust is a little bit misplaced. Maria Konnikova has written about con artists and their amazing power to suck us in. She's the author of The Confidence Game, Why We Fall For It Every Time. She's also a contributing writer for The New Yorker. Maria, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So how would you define a con? Sort of in the most simple way, what are the elements of a con as it gets put together? Well, the definition actually comes from the word confidence, as in to give someone your confidence. Mm -hmm. It comes from a phrase that not the first known con artist, but the first time that we used the word con artist happened, which was this guy um, in the 1800s in New York, William Thompson, who would approach people on the street and say, have you the confidence in me to lend me your watch until tomorrow? And he ended up with a whole lot of watches before he was caught because it was actually quite an ingenious way to get people to put their trust in him because it really, um, you know, it says so much about the kind of person you are. Um, Do you trust this person? Do you think they'll give the watch back? And so that's where the root of con or confidence man um, or confidence game comes from. Have you the confidence in me? So Mm. it's all about giving someone your confidence. And that is the crucial element. So con artists don't actually take anything from you. You give it to them. So you were talking about Charles Ponzi. The brilliance of his scheme is that he didn't take money from anyone. He didn't steal any money. Mm -hmm. People wanted to give it to him. The same thing, you know, when we have our modern day Charles Ponzi, Bernie Madoff. I mean, people just couldn't wait to give him their money. There were wait lists. They tried for years to get into the Madoff Fund. And that's why I think that defines all cons, not just Ponzi schemes, that you really, you give them your confidence fully. Um, And it makes con artists really tough to catch and really tough to prosecute because oftentimes they didn't break the law. So what makes us as humans, I guess, so vulnerable 
to these con people, to these confidence people, since, you know, if we don't change over the course of 100 years, there must be something kind of hardwired, sort of part of our psychology that we're just we're just vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's actually a three part answer. Part one is that we're really, really bad at spotting lies. So we actually haven't evolved to spot deception, and instead we've evolved to trust. And it's more advantageous from an evolutionary standpoint to trust other people. So there's a a lot of data that shows us societies with higher levels of trust do better socially, economically. Um, And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense, right? Who's, Who's the person who's actually going to survive in the wilderness? Not the lone wolf, but the person who has others supporting him. Right, right. And so you need to build those human connections. You need to learn to trust other people. So that part makes sense. And it also makes sense that we don't spot deception well because most deceptions are really kind of social lubricants. So you don't want to know that someone doesn't really like you. You don't want to know (laughs) that they're not happy to see you. You know, when someone says, oh, you know, I love your haircut, you don't want to know that they actually think that your haircut looks ludicrous. (laughs) You know, (laughs) so so really those kinds of white lies make society function. And so we we don't have that radar. So I think that's the first part of it, that we can't really tell when people are lying to us, even though we think we're really, really good at it. I think the second part of it is that we are very optimistic as a species. We're hopeful. You know, that gets us going in the morning, that we think that no matter what, tomorrow is going to be better than yesterday was. Otherwise, what's the point? And you see on scale after scale that people actually have this kind of optimism bias about themselves and about the world. They don't see reality as reality. They see it with kind of this rose-colored glow. There's mm-hmm. there's really a truth to that cliche that we see the world through rose-colored glasses. And the only exception to that is people who are clinically depressed. They actually respond accurately on all self-assessments and assessments of the world, and they're clinically depressed. So once again, it shows that having that optimism bias is normally right. very advantageous. Right. It helps protect our psychology. We don't want to know the truth about ourselves, which I think leads us nicely to the final point, which is that if I tell you, you know, listen, if it seems too good to be true, it is, you'll say, yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. However, when it comes to yourself, you never really think good things are too good. You think, oh, I deserve this. Right. I Don't I know how to pick the best investment funds? Look at these returns. You don't say, hmm, these returns are too good to be true. You're saying, look at how much money I made last year. Right. And look how smart. It's a measure, instead of a measure of the con person's intelligence, it's a measure of your intelligence that... Exactly. And con artists know that they, you know, flattery gets you everywhere. And con con artists know this. I mean, they will flatter the ear off of anyone. You will feel so smart, so refined, so sophisticated. You'll feel like the best version of of yourself. That's the version they're selling you. Mm. Um, And you'll feel like a truly wonderful human being. And I think that's part of the success. They make you feel good. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Maria Konnikova, author of The Confidence Game, Why We Fall for It Every Time. She's also a contributing writer for The New Yorker. Do you think that con artists are a special group of people, or they're just kind of regular people who somewhere along the line like made a bad choice or kind of started to follow a, a slightly nefarious path and started down this 
you know what I mean? Or are they like mm-hmm. very particularly suited to, to do this thing? So I think the answer is both. So I think that a con artist is both born and made. It's a combination, as with so many things, of predisposition and opportunity. So would any person become a con artist um, if given the chance? Probably not. But if you have certain predisposing qualities and you're put in that environment, then a person who would have you know, been a perfectly you know, decent contributing member of society in an honest way um, in another set of circumstances could become a con artist. Mm. So I write about something called the dark triad of traits, um, which is psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. And psychopathy is actually incredibly rare. So it's absolutely not true that all con artists are psychopaths. There's a very small overlap there. Mm. But narcissism and Machiavellianism are actually much more common. So the narcissism is not just a kind of grandiose sense of self, but a sense of entitlement. So um, since we've spoken about them in the past, let me just refer back to someone like Ponzi or Madoff. You don't think that you're doing anything bad because you think that you are more entitled to that money. You know, you're smarter, you're somehow better, and so you're just taking what's rightfully yours, and who are you really hurting? You You don't even think of it as criminal behavior. Exactly, exactly. So it's this very self-justifying way of looking at the world. And Machiavellianism, from Machiavelli's Prince, is the ability to persuade people to do what you want them to do without their realizing it. So someone like Madoff wanted you to give them your money, but instead of asking for it, what does he do? He says, no, I'm sorry, I'm not taking any new investments. He makes you beg. So right, he, right. he actually kind of uses this very sly psychological approach to get people to do exactly what he wants, but they think it's their idea. Right. They're like, oh, he, you know, he, he didn't ask me. I wanted to give it to him. And people do this over and over. Hmm. So I wonder, you know, since we're really not that good sort of psychologically at, um, at distrust, we're very good at trust. I wonder when it comes to these kind of newish platforms like Twitter and Facebook, where lots and lots of people who are, quote unquote, our friends now have real sort of proximity to us or feel like they have proximity to us. um, Do you think things have gotten a lot worse because in some ways people can bridge vast distances to con you? Absolutely. Um, I think that social media is a con artist's best friend. Um, And they are able to take advantage of it so much better than we are able to protect ourselves. We are just putting so much information about ourselves online that it's now a cakewalk. So things that the first step of any con is called the put up and it's profiling the victim, figuring out, you know, what are the victim's likes and dislikes? What makes her tick? What motivates her? What is she afraid of? All of these things that just create a psychological profile that you can then work with. This used to take so long. Now all you have to do is be friends with them on Facebook, follow them on Twitter, follow them on Instagram, look at their registries, and you have this big picture. You don't even have to be technologically savvy, but you know so much about their life. Um, It's actually quite scary. And then you can use all of this information against them. And I don't mean use it against them in the sense of blackmail. I mean, use it against them like, oh, you know, how about them Red Sox? Oh, you're also a fan. Who knew we have so much in common? And of course, they had done 
all of this research right. and they know exactly what bar to look for you. Right. They know that you love the Red Sox. They know they even probably know your favorite brand of shoes and they've worn the same shoes because we like people who are similar to us. <laughs> all of these sorts of things um, that will make trust so much more easy to accomplish and so much quicker to accomplish. Is there any evidence that there has been in the last few years a big tick up in these kinds of scams and and cons? You know, there's been evidence in an uptick in catfishing, which is false identity. um, And that has definitely become easier. There are a lot of sweetheart scams up there. And a sweetheart scam is when you think you're in a romantic relationship with someone, um, but it's really a con. So things like that have definitely been on the upswing. It's really a con. Like, do you know the person or are you just kind of like pen pals with the person? Either way. So okay, one of the okay. people I wrote about um, met someone on OkCupid and ended up living with him. And he was an imposter. He was not who he said he was. This was a really ter- – it's a terrible situation, but unfortunately a common one. So and then they just steal. They, like, they, yeah, they steal from the partner. Yeah, they're in for something else. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're in there for something else. Um, money quite often or – um, you know, power. There are lots of different motivations. Mm. But um, but yes, they. it's not about love at all. Mm. It's only about love for one of the two mm. people. And it's a, that's a, it's a really devastating one, but it's become much easier with, with social media and with online dating. But let me caveat all of this by saying that there are no good numbers on the number of cons that are perpetrated every year because most of them are not reported, either because people don't realize they've been conned. So a lot of people still to the end say, no, no, it wasn't a con. You know, this was legitimate. I just got unlucky. Or... Um, they're too embarrassed, and so they don't report it. So we don't have the real numbers. We just have an approximation. But yes, it does seem like social media has opened up the world to a lot of different cons, and the internet in general. I mean, if you think about the Russian hacking, that started off with um, a very elementary technique of con artists, the fake email, please reset your password. And this worked at the highest levels of government. And that's how they were able to gain access to um, the emails of so many people in the Democratic Party. So uh, now that you know everything that you know, are there um, are there pieces of advice that you give to people about like how to protect yourself, especially if this is a world in which Cons that always existed are there, but maybe they've multiplied. Maybe they're facilitated by all these kind of new ways we have of reaching out to people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the most practical piece of advice is don't accept friend requests from anyone you don't actually know, no matter how many friends in common you have, and be really protective of your personal information. And people, you know, people say, oh, you're old. You know, that that's why you're giving this advice. I want all of my friends to know all this personal stuff about me. I'm saying, yeah, well, you know what? <laughs> This is it, it actually sure your friends know it, but then a lot of other people do, too. Right. Um, you know, really be careful with your privacy settings hmm. and with who you accept into your friend groups. And um, that is the single most practical piece of information I can offer. Um, one that's a little bit more difficult to implement, but I think is very helpful is to try to look at yourself in the third person. So. How would you react to this situation if it weren't happening to you, if it were happening to, say, 
the guy who sits over in the next cubicle from you, what advice would you give him? So, for instance, you know, he has this great new investment opportunity in land in Florida um, that's been underdeveloped, and he's really excited about this because he's going to have great returns, and he shares this over lunch. Do you say, oh, that sounds really great, I'm really excited for you, or do you say, wait a minute, um, I think you need to do more hmm. recon on this person, this aspect, this, have you asked this? Have you seen that? And if it's the latter and it's happening to you, then you should be careful as well. Because it's much easier to be objective about someone else, especially someone who's not very close to you, than it is to be objective about yourself. Hmm. That said, this advice is much easier to give than to actually take. Because when it starts happening to you, you don't want to be objective. When good things happen, we don't ask questions. We only ask questions when bad things are happening. Have you changed your behavior at all? Or do you feel like you're less trusting of people? I was for sure at the um, right after I kind of emerged from writing the book because I had spent over three years with just these really terrible individuals. <laughs> and so I was really dispirited. I said, you know, people suck. Humanity sucks. <laughs> um, you know, Hobbes was right. Life is nasty, brutish, and short. And so, yeah, for a while there, I just didn't want to meet anyone new. And then I realized that that's a very impoverished existence. I mean, you really close yourself off emotionally to new experiences, to new relationships, and it's not worth it because most people are not con artists. What I realized was that the same thing that makes us so vulnerable to con artists is also what makes us human. It's the essence of our humanity. And I wouldn't give that up. And so, sure, maybe being trusting and open will make me a potential mark, but it's also going to have me leading a much richer life for most of my life. And so I would rather take that trade off. And that's where I've ended up. Maria Konnikova is the author of The Confidence Game, Why We Fall For It Every Time. She's also a contributing writer for The New Yorker. Maria, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And on our website, we've got Konnikova's personal favorite when it comes to cons, a man who impersonated people in almost every profession you can imagine, including some that are going to horrify you. So he decided that he wanted to be a surgeon because it was the most kind of prestigious thing he could think of. And so he stole the credentials of an actual surgeon. This was during the Korean War, and there was a shortage of surgeons. You can hear that part of the interview at innovationhub.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. There's a famous story in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, about how if you look at the rosters of pro hockey teams, there is a really high percentage of players who were born in January, February, March. And part of the reason is that when they were kids, they were always the oldest kids on their team of, let's say, eight-year-olds. So they were tougher, they were faster, they were more coordinated at every single stage of the game. And that single lucky break stayed with them for years. So by the time they became young adults, they had been stars for a long time. 
not only did they have opportunities that other people didn't have, they had tremendous confidence. And this story pushes us to ask an important question. How much of what you've accomplished can be chalked up to your skills, and how much is coincidence or chance? Robert Frank is the author of Success and Luck, Good Fortune and the Myth of Meritocracy, as well as an essay on the subject in The New York Times, which we will link to. He is a professor of economics at Cornell. Robert, thanks for being here. Thanks, Kara. So you say we tend to underestimate the role that luck plays in our lives as they unfold. Why do we do that? Why do we underestimate it? You know, suppose you've succeeded in a major way. Not many people do, but in absolute numbers, there's a lot of people like that. And and you're 40 or 50, and you're trying to account for how you got to the top. Well, almost certainly you were very talented. Few people succeed who aren't. You've probably worked really hard. That's another common trait that, that successful people have. And so you think back, and what's available in your memory? Well, it's all those long hours you put in. It's all the difficult rivals you had to beat out at one stage or another. And those are the events that are most accessible to you in memory. And so you weave a narrative uh, about your path to the top. Maybe you had a teacher in the 12th grade who steered you away from trouble. Maybe there was somebody who was offered a promotion and couldn't accept it because he had an ill mother to take care of. Uh, Lots of little things happen along every career path. And And those seemingly minor events don't stick very strongly in memory, so they don't enter your life stories nearly as heavily. So I think in all good faith, people, when they try to explain to themselves what happened, they think of themselves as having succeeded only because they were talented and hardworking. Uh, Those factors matter, to be sure, but they're not the only ones that matter. Well, it sounds also like people err on the side of being positive about themselves, that they, yeah, that they yeah, you know, got what they have because, after all, they're more deserving than other people. I mean, E.B. White wrote in the 30s in an essay, uh, luck is not a subject you can mention in the presence of self-made men. <laughs> so that's right. I mean, you've got to uh, tread really carefully. So then does that mean to you that if you were being really tough with a whole audience of entrepreneurs— Would you say that luck is the most important thing that, you know, like, yes, they worked hard um, and yes, they had talent, but luck is even more important than hard work and talent? No, I would not say that. Okay. In fact, in the book, I report on some simulations my assistant and I did where we looked at a very competitive market, one where there's only one winner, uh, thousands of contestants. It's a pure performance contest, uh, the fastest runner wins, so to speak, and your speed is 98% determined by how hard you work and how much talent you you were born with. 2% of your speed is accounted for by luck. And in those simulations, the person with the most talent and effort almost never won. There were lots of people breathing down that person's neck. They were almost as talented and hardworking. And so among the ones that are almost as good in terms of talent and effort, there'll be at least a few, often many, who were extraordinarily lucky to boot. And the winner of the contest will almost always be one of those people. Hmm. So luck's not the biggest factor in it, but it's very rare to see a winner who wasn't the beneficiary of, of luck in some important way. Uh, you offer up this example that 
kind of blew me away that I think of as a great work of genius, no luck involved. And that is the sort of rise to fame, the embrace of the Mona Lisa, the painting, the Mona Lisa, you know, which we all think of as one of the greatest paintings of all time. But you say in a lot of ways, the reason we think it is so great, pure luck. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it. Uh, I have. I've, I have. I've seen I mean, it a couple of it's times. It's hard to see it because it's the honest truth is, right, if you go there's a, a, to the Louvre in Paris, there's a mob of people. There, people are all trying to take pictures. There's jostling. It's not really that fun to see it's it up close. It's very difficult but... <laughs> to get close to it because of the scene you described. It's elbow to elbow. People That's are right. jostling for position. There are two Leonardos in the gallery right adjacent to where the Mona Lisa hangs. Uh, Duncan Watts, the sociologist, saw the Mona Lisa uh, a few years back and was underwhelmed. Uh, Why is everybody crowding around to see the Mona Lisa? Those other two paintings, they're from the same era. They're by the same fabled uh, person in art history. They had the same novel brushstrokes, in fact, that the Mona Lisa exhibited. Why don't people crowd around to see them? And and so he did a little digging and discovered that the Mona Lisa, in fact, had not been much remarked about for the early years of its existence. Hmm. Until 1911, nobody much had ever heard of it. It Until 1911, so it went for hundreds of years without people caring that much about it. Nobody cared much about the Mona Lisa, really. Then it was stolen one evening by uh, Vincenzo Perugia, an Italian maintenance worker uh, who worked at the Louvre. He, mm-hmm. he stuck it under his cloak one night and walked out with it. <laughs> and it was an explosion of publicity. The, the theft was very widely publicized. The technology was new then. It was the first time that pictures of a painting were splashed across the front pages of newspapers all around the world. Uh, and the theft went un resolved for at least another two years when Perugia tried to sell the painting finally to the director of the Uffizi in Florence. And of course, he was turned into the authorities. Another explosion of publicity occurred uh, when that happened. And so twice in the span of two years, a painting was photographed and splashed all around the world on the front pages of newspapers. It quickly became the very symbol of Western art and culture. And it's been that ever since. But When we try to explain why it's famous, you know, the art historians gin up all these special properties that it has. But the more likely or plausible story to my ear is that the Mona Lisa is famous for being famous. It's famous because it got stolen uh, by chance (laughs) in 1911. It's like Kim Kardashian. She's famous for being famous. I see. The Mona Lisa as being like Kim Kardashian. That that is not a comparison you hear every day. (laughs) So one of the really interesting things to me here is that research shows that luck kind of um, occurs in patterns. So it can come down to something as simple as, you know, as I was saying before, when somebody's birthday falls in the year, what their last name is, how much does that kind of stuff that you would never think would really affect your life, um, how much does that affect our You know, lives? those examples are instructive because uh, everybody recognizes without any argument that if you're born in July, uh, you know, you're not really genetically different. Your home environment wouldn't have been much different. But the fact is people who were born in July are going to be, on average, younger than their classmates given the school start dates and the regulations that are in effect in most places. 
And that means they're less likely. They'll be smaller, less uh, advanced at every stage than their classmates. They're less likely to hold leadership positions in high school. When they graduate from college, they're going to earn lower salaries by virtue of that fact. As someone born in July, what you're saying yeah, concerns don't me. Up, don't give up. <laughs> I will try not effect. to give up at, right after <laughs> this interview. Plenty of successful people born in July. Uh, <laughs> but it's a, the fact that it matters at all, I think, is, is instructive and, and ought to make you more receptive to the idea that seemingly minor chance events could be important in how your life turns out. Do you see this on a, a sort of broader scale? So there's the being born in July thing, which I'm trying to get over. But then there's also much bigger situations. So you think about the 2008 you know, financial downturn. What if you just happen to be either born or, let's say, graduating from college around that time? That's just bad luck. You entered a terrible job market. It took you longer to find a job. The job you found paid less. It offered less responsibility. Every year for the rest of your life, uh, on average, now there'll be exceptions, but on average, the people who started their careers then are going to earn less every year for the rest of their lives. That's bad luck. There's no other way to think about it. But be cognizant of the fact that the opportunities that are available to you, uh, some of them are under your control, but many of them are not. And, you know, we've not been doing a good job as a country for the last 20 or 30 years in maintaining the set of opportunities that people like me grew up with. I graduated from college with no debt. My family didn't have a lot of money. It was a good school I went to. There were uh, music programs in the schools. The sports programs were available to all kids. Now, you know, there are fees for those programs. The poor kids can't participate. So, you know, we haven't been doing a very good job of maintaining the kind of opportunities that were more broadly available when I was growing up. And I think that's something we could do better and, and really should do better. Just out of curiosity, when you've um, or have you talked to somebody who's been successful and tried to talk through the whole role of luck in their lives with them, I, I wonder like what they've said, what their response to you has been. You know, I mentioned to you the E.B. White quip. Yeah. Uh, Self-made men don't want to hear about luck. Right. Uh, and I, I saw the, the wisdom of that quip in the comment section to this essay I published uh, where all these self-made men wrote in lambasting me for thinking luck might be part of their story too. <laughs> you, you have to be careful uh, in, in how you put this to people. Uh, you'll remember... Uh, in Boston, uh, Elizabeth Warren's 2012 speech uh, when she reminded people that, look, if you have a successful business, you didn't build that on your own. Right, you right. hired workers, the community educated, you shipped your goods to market on roads, we helped build. So part of the social contract is to pay forward for the next group that comes along. But what did people hear? They didn't hear that perfectly reasonable message. They imagined that she was trying to tell them they hadn't deserved yeah, to succeed. Yeah, they didn't own their own the success. They Somebody had. else owned that yeah, success. Yeah, you got this lofty position uh, and you didn't really merit it. Mm -hmm. uh, that was not the message. Luckiest thing that ever happened to you in terms of your career, in terms of being successful in your career? The year I was on the job market, I had a bad flu when I went to do my interview, so I didn't have many opportunities. But one of them was uh, at a non-research-oriented school in the Midwest. They offered me a job when I went there to give a talk. Then I got an offer from Cornell, 
Uh, I was delighted. Cornell was uh, and still is an excellent research university. It was exactly the kind of place a student like me would have dreamed about going. When I came to take up my position the, the next year, uh, one of the faculty members who had been at the meeting where I'd gotten my offer, he'd in fact seconded the motion that I get the offer, told me that the chairman of the department had been so angry by his seconding the motion that he threw a piece of chalk at him from across the room. Wow. Then he told me that I was the seventh out of seven people hired that year. They've never hired seven before that mm. or, and haven't since then. So, you know, by, by every uh, calculation, I would have ended up at that non-research school. But uh, basically, my life would have turned out hugely differently except for that pure fluke occurrence that they happened to be hiring seven people and I got the last offer. Robert Frank is now, of course, a professor of economics at Cornell. Uh, We will link to his work on luck and its role in success. Robert, thank you so much. My pleasure, Carol. Luck be a lady tonight. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Tonight. Luck if you've ever been a lady to begin with. Luck be a lady tonight. Professor Mark Edwards has been living a strange reality for about the last 15 years. He knows what will happen. He just has no idea when. Edwards is an environmental and water resources engineer at Virginia Tech, and he's an expert on lead. What he knows is that in many places in America, people are drinking lead-contaminated water. What he doesn't know is whether that water is in my neighborhood or in your neighborhood. He certainly had no idea it was in Flint, Michigan, until late one night. When we got the results, I was sitting in my chair in my living room about midnight, and I would have fallen out of the chair if it was possible. That It was the worst linen water we'd seen in probably 25 years, and we'd seen a lot. This isn't really a story about Flint, though we'll talk about it some. It's more about what lies beneath the surface when it comes to our drinking water and why the truth often doesn't bubble up. When Mark Edwards started to understand the dimensions of what was going on in Flint before almost anyone else in the public did, it was literally because a mom with twins FedExed him her water. Almost three times hazardous waste levels of lead were in her house, so much so that a single gulp of that water could cause the lead poisoning of her child. The sad thing is, as I said, Edwards knew this was coming. Because of a prior lead and water crisis in Washington, D.C., and the fact that the agencies involved in the cause of that crisis did not learn from their mistakes, we knew another D.C. was going to occur. And when we got the call from Miss Leanne Walters explaining the situation in Flint, we knew, unfortunately, that this was it. This is what we knew was going to happen, another lead and water crisis. What Edwards has learned from years spent measuring lead levels and tangling with government agencies is that this problem is bigger than anyone realizes and that lots of people don't really want to talk about it, as he discovered in D.C. So it took uh, six years uh, for me volunteering to show that thousands of children had their blood lead elevated. So the only thing that was learned from D.C., which, by the way, was 30 times worse 
than the harm done in Flint, Michigan in terms of the population exposed to lead was that unless someone from outside looks in on this and steps in, uh, these agencies can get away with anything and they will. Edwards hopes that now is a moment when we can start to fix a water system that's dangerously under-resourced. President Trump has talked a lot about infrastructure rebuilding. Not to put too fine a point on it, Edwards says if you don't have water infrastructure done right, you've got nothing. I feel strongly this is an area of potential bipartisan agreement, this issue of infrastructure inequality and upgrading these pipes. And so I think it's been a real canary in a coal mine. It's been a wake-up call that you can only neglect your water infrastructure so long before civilization as we know it ends. And we have a precedent with the Roman Empire when they did not maintain their aqueducts. Uh, Ninety-five percent of the population of Rome had to leave. Uh, this is what happens when you don't have a mechanism bringing clean water into a city and sewage out. Civilization, as you know, it ends, and you can't maintain the same population that you once did. So how prevalent are lead pipes across the country? I mean, what, in your view, is the dimension of the problem that we're looking at? Well, lead in water is, is very common, and we think that government-supplied or responsible lead is in about 13 million U.S. homes. These are the lead pipes that connect a house to the water main. And virtually every home in the United States has some lead in their plumbing. We realized we, it wasn't until January 2014 that we actually passed a law that required that manufacturers stop adding lead to brass that's mm. used in kitchen faucets and intricate plumbing devices. So any home built up until January 2014 has some lead in it, Whoa. although the worst homes are those built before 1986, which could have lead pipes or lead solder. And is any amount of lead is, is not a good thing, I'm assuming? Well, it's official U.S. government policy that there's no safe level of lead exposure. But practically, I get concerned in terms of the impact on lead in blood when you get above about five parts per billion lead in water. Uh, of course, the World Health Organization standard is 10 and the EPA says 15. But these are kind of out-of-date regulations, and the risk is, is relatively low, you know, if you're at five or below, but you start getting into the above 20 parts per billion or 100, or in the case of Miss Walters in Flint, Michigan, 13,000 oh parts gosh. per billion, uh, you start to realize the nature of this threat. It's literally to the point that it, occasionally in some of these cities, you'll get a glass of water, and if you consume it, it's the equivalent of eating like five lead paint chips. Have you ever, or has anybody ever just done a bunch of water samples, like sampled water in L.A., sampled water in Miami, sampled water in Indianapolis, just to check it out? Well, the system is based on trust. I mean, we have this system of environmental policemen at the EPA and at your water utility who are supposed to be following federal law and doing that for you. We have been doing some checking, as have some reporters around the country. And in general, most of the cities they've looked at and turned rocks over at, they've, they've found that, that laws and protocols were, in fact, being broken. Hmm. In some cities like Pittsburgh, they admitted that they had a problem. We found lead in schools wherever we looked. And, of course, even at cities that are doing their fair share, there's still homes that that have lead and water problems. So even if your city is following the letter of the law, 
doing everything that's in, in its power, uh, there can still be many, many hundreds, if not you know, thousands of homes in some of these cities that have lead above the World Health Organization approved levels. Right, right. And most people don't know that they have some responsibility to protect themselves from lead. And the reason they don't know is because no one's telling them. Uh, instead, we're misleading people and saying that their water is safe when it's not. Do you think this is more of an issue for people who are low income? Or is this all over? doesn't matter what income you are. It could affect you anywhere. This is an issue of infrastructure inequality that really does tend to hit hardest in our poorest minority neighborhoods and also in many of our poorest rural cities or towns. And what you're talking about is a confluence of having bad old pipes bringing water to your house, plus other factors that the folks living in those homes don't uh, use filters, for example, to protect themselves from the lead, or in the case of um, poor minority moms, they have a lower uh, frequency of breastfeeding, which really is remarkably protective of the infant, and they're more prone to make up infant formula from bottled lead-contaminated water. Mm. And this is off the charts in terms of the risk, in terms of where the risk from lead in water is. So for socioeconomic reasons and circumstance, uh, this infrastructure inequality, it does tend to hit our poorest and most vulnerable, as is the case in Flint, Michigan. Um, you talked about lead filters. Do you feel like we have the technology to um, address this sort of decaying uh, water infrastructure that we, we've got out there, which, I mean, you know, I, I, the American Society of Civil Engineers says, you know, our water supply gets about a D and a report card, which is terrible. Um, do we have the technology that we need to fix that problem? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the lead issue is very simple to fix. It's making sure that in homes that have lead pipe, if we could figure out where they are and tell people, you install one of these $30 filters that you can buy at Lowe's or Home Depot that's designed to remove lead. The field data shows that they're very, very effective. And you, you just need to install a $30 filter from Lowe's. That, that would have fixed things. In, would that have fixed things in Flint? That would have eliminated the lead problem in Flint. Yeah, you just use the filter to clean the water that's used for cooking or drinking. Um, you can use water with elevated lead in it to bathe, shower, wash dishes, wash clothes. That's not really a significant health risk. So that's what's so frustrating about this is that we have inexpensive, effective cures. And the danger is not so much having high lead in the water. It's having high lead in the water and not telling people about it so they can take steps to protect themselves. That's the essence of the federal lead and copper rule law that... Uh, the EPA and the water companies are supposed to test lead, and if it's high, uh, they tell people we can protect ourselves, and we thank them for that, and that's why we pay them to do their job. It's not like by hiding these problems they get any extra money or anything. Right. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Mark Edwards, a professor at Virginia Tech and one of the scientists who uncovered systemic lead poisoning in Flint, Michigan. Do you think... We need more people inside government, outside government, in labs, working on 
like smarter, cheaper, easier ways to address uh, lead in infrastructure or, or, you know, ways to create better infrastructure? Or is this simply nothing more than an issue of political will? Well, I think it's both. There, there's innovation that needs to occur that makes, for instance, the finding and replacement of these lead pipes more cost-effective. We also have a other emerging problems. Lead, perhaps, is not even the greatest problem we're facing with our infrastructure. It's leaks. It's water affordability. It's microorganisms that grow in our house, water systems that can kill us. And this happened in Flint. Twelve people died as the result of a Legionnaire's disease outbreak that is very likely caused by bad infrastructure, the lack of corrosion control, and these, these bacteria that grow in, in people's water systems. And that's an emerging problem that we have to study and learn more about. There's currently no laws that protect people uh, from from these emerging dangers, such as Legionella and other bacteria. So we need more research, but a lot of this is simply getting funding to cities who can at least afford to pay for it. Realize when the infrastructure is graded a D minus, that means that Hundreds and hundreds of cities actually have an F, and many cities that are rich and can afford it have an A. Right, right, right. The average doesn't tell you the whole story. No. the What we're talking about is an unprecedented infrastructure inequality where poor cities or post-industrial cities or rural America simply does not have money to do anything but fix pipes on failure at the least cost-effective way to get ahead of these right. problems. And, you know, other cities that have funding, they can replace lead pipes, they can upgrade their infrastructure, they can raise rates. Most people don't realize Flint was paying amongst the highest water rates in the world for water hmm. that we now know was not suitable for anything but flushing toilets. Uh, and so it's not an issue of what people are paying it's the fact that there's not enough people left in those cities to pay for it, and they're not able to proactively replace their pipes so that they can cost-effectively deal with this problem. It's kind of an infrastructure death spiral, if you will. So given all this, should people trust their drinking water, and do you trust your drinking water? One of the tragedies in the aftermath of Flint is that for most systems around the country where they're actually doing their job and they are trustworthy, that no one trusts their water anymore. And part of that's because we reached a tipping point, if you will, where we found enough people who are cheating or not following the federal law that it's impossible to tell which systems are trustworthy and which systems are not. So it's going to take years and years before trust in drinking water is exposed. And by the way, the, the levels of trust in, in water have never been lower. And in fact, bottled water sales exceeded soda sales in this country last year in large part because of the fallout from Flint, Michigan. So finally, give me a sense of um, what your ongoing relationship is like with Flint and uh, and what things are like there now that in terms of what you've seen. Well, the situation is that the water is much improved, but the residents, and understandably so, some of them will never trust drinking water again. Uh, Leanne Walters is, is moved from Flint. She actually lives in Virginia now, and she's promised me she will never drink tap water again. And 
Wow. Many residents are afraid of taking baths or showers, which has horrific consequences in terms of other diseases such as Shigella, which is spread by uh, lack of hand washing and hand-to-hand -hand contact. And there was an outbreak in Flint and Genesee County of that uh, just this year. Uh, so, but we're kind of at, at the end of what we can do to make the water safe to drink. Uh, that the water quality is now is probably as good as or better than most other U.S. cities. Doesn't mean people are going to trust it to drink it or shower in it. Hmm. But, you know, the next phase and the phase that will determine the fate of Flint's future is fixing the infrastructure and making water affordable to the point that people are actually paying less for their water bill than they are for their mortgage, which unfortunately uh, is not always the case in Flint right hmm. now. And if water rates double, most people are going to be paying more for their water than, than for their mortgage. Wow. And under those circumstances, who's going to move into the city? And that's really what we need is to make it a hospitable, civilized place where there's clean and affordable water. That's the only way to give Flint a bright future. Mark Edwards leads the Flint Water Study. He's a professor of civil engineering at Virginia Tech. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. On our website, we've got more about lead in water, including a new site that's working on mapping lead levels around the country using your zip code. That's at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. PRI, Public Radio International.